Alright, so thank you for your patience. Okay, this morning we have the privilege of studying together Parshas of Chanan. So uh, we're going to actually start from the beginning. I don't think we've learned the beginning uh, yet together. So uh, we'll start from the beginning, we'll see how far we get. Of course, we continue where we left off last week. Uh, it's a continuation of Moshe's soliloquy, his speech in the final uh, days of his life, in which he is uh, charging the Jewish people with the lessons of the short Jewish history until that point, and the lessons to learn moving forward. So in the middle of, of uh, we already see, saw, in these last days of Moshe's life, he's unable to drop the fact that he can't go into Israel. He can't stop thinking about it. We saw it last week because we studied that he recounts and recalls the story of the Maraglam. And in the context of the story of the Maraglam, he says to the people, Oh yeah, that reminds me. I also can't go in because of you. And we spoke about that at length last week. We spoke about it actually last Shabbos afternoon as well. So here too, So Moshe says, at this point, after this episode, um, he says, um, I appealed to God. I appealed to God during that time saying, Hashem alokim atach ilosel haros as avdecha as godlecha as yadcha chazaka asher mia b'shamayim of aretz asher yasecha maasecha bechivurasecha. He said, God, you've shown me your greatness, your strong hand. You've shown me the power that you have in heaven and earth to do according to what you want. Asher yasecha maasecha bechivurasecha, according to your deed, according to your might. So therefore, God, because you've proven to me that you can do anything. It's almost so sad when you read this. Moshe is like the kid who can't drop it, wants something so badly. They refuse to move on. So he says, God, you've shown me that, that you can do anything. It's almost the imagery is, you know, the, the age-old klutz kasha. Can God create a rock that's so heavy he can't lift it? On the one hand, if you say no, so you're limiting God, he can't create a rock that's so heavy. On the other end, if you say yes, you're limiting God. You're saying He can't lift it. So, of course, it's a klotz kasha. It's not really a meaningful question to begin with. But this is Moshe's kind of strategy here. God, you've proven to me how powerful you are. Don't tell me I can't reverse my decision. I've already decided. I've ordained you're not to go into Israel. And I'm God. I've ordained that I can't reverse it. God, you've shown me how powerful you are. You've shown me your strength. You've shown me your will. If you will it, when there's a godly will... There's a godly way. There's no problem. But what happened? But God became angry with me because of you. There we go again, the blame game. And He didn't hear me. It's enough. Stop. Don't ask me again. We've all reached that point with our children. Say, okay, it's enough. Stop. Don't you ask me one more time and A, B, or C. Don't ask me again. I've had it. I've had it. So what's going on here? So first of all, this verb, look at Rashi. It's very interesting. I've shared with you before, Rav Pinkas Atzal has a Sefer Sha'aram Betfilah, which he quote, quotes the Medrash. There are 13 different synonyms for davening. 13 different synonyms throughout our Tanakh for davening. You have, uh, of course, the famous one is Lahit Palel, Pilel. But you have, you have Rina, you have Chinun, you have um, Tzara, you have... He's 13 different synonyms for davening. And of course we know there's no such thing as a synonym in the Hebrew language. 
So there's, there's at least a subtle difference between these different uh, methodologies of prayer. So one of the words is v'chinun. That's the verb, v'chinun. V'eschanan. Moshe is employing this type of prayer. It's a different type of prayer. So what is chinun? So Rashi says, Ein chinun b'chomakam al-lasha matnas chinam. Chinun is a prayer for something as a gift. Even when you're undeserving. Even when you're undeserving. Right, we call God Kerachum Mechanun. In the 13 attributes, which we will be saying very shortly, Elul will be upon us, in Slichos, in Yom Kippur Davening, and so on, Rashana, and Yom Kippur rather. So, we have 13 attributes to describe God and God's compassion. Chinun is God bestows compassion even when we're undeserving. Matnas Chinam, it's a gift. It's a pure gift. Pure gift. In other words, sometimes you can go to someone and you could say, look, you owe me one. I need a favor, but you owe me one. I've made enough deposits with you, it's time for a withdrawal. You owe me one. But other times you go to someone and you say, I need a favor. You owe me nothing. You owe me nothing. I'm asking a lot. You're not obligated to give this to me. But I'm asking you for it. So this is Mat Naschinam. How does Rashi know that? Look at the Sif Seichachamim. Why didn't Moshe describe it? What led Rashi to this conclusion? Rashi knew that this had to be a different type of prayer than the usual one. Because if the ordinary prayer is Pilel, Espalel, then why didn't Moshe begin this parsha? Why does he start Ve'etzchanan? Because Chinon is a different type of davening. It's a davening when you have an admission, I am unworthy. I'm undeserving. I'm asking for something which I'm not entitled to. But God, I'm asking you to give me a gift, nonetheless. Continues Rashi. So even though the righteous, frankly, says Rashi, have made significant deposits with God, the righteous have made a number of deposits. They should be entitled to make a withdrawal. But the way of the righteous is not to make a withdrawal, is not to acknowledge the deposit, but rather is to take the perspective that everything God does for us is a gift. It's a gift. I'm undeserving. I'm, uh, I have no expectation. It's a gift. Or the Sifri has 10, another Medrash has 13. But as we said, if you look at the Sif Chacham, he gives you the 10. Shava, Tzaka, Naka, Rina, Pitzur, Kriya, Nipo, Pilo, Pigia, and Tchina. There are three more that are quoted in a different metrish in the Yalkut Shimoni. The Yalkut Shimoni adds three more. And that's what they say for Shara Mitzvila. It goes chapter by chapter, each different form of davening. Some davening is out of joy. Some davening is out of sadness. Some davening is out of desperation. Other davening is out of confidence. Davening comes in all different forms. We shouldn't use one generic type of davening. So here the Sifseh Chachamim, in Ozdalad, quotes ten different verbs. Shavat, Saka, Naka, Rina, Pitzur, Kriya, Nipo, Pilo, Pigia, Tchina. Ten different verbs for davening. And again, the Yalkut Shemoni adds three more. So that's why Va'eschanan. Va'eschanan. Um... Okay, continuing in Rashi. Voisahi, at that time. What makes Moshe say at that time? What do you mean? What inspired his davening to God? What motivated his saying to God, give me one more chance, let me in? Rashi says, What happens? 
God allowed Moshe to participate in the beginning of the conquest. Where are Og? Where are Sichon Melech Moab and Og Melech Bashan? Where are Moab and Bashan? No. They're east of the Jordan River. <coughs> Northeast, the, Gol- the Golan. Yeah. They're before you get into Israel. Moshe participated in that conquest of that land. That was the land ultimately that Reuben, God, and half of Menashe wanted to inherit. So, so Moshe... did that become part of Eres HaKadosh? Now it is. <laughs> it's the status... Right. Yeah. So, the, so Moshe says, I thought from the fact that God let me participate in the beginning of the conquest, I thought maybe God changed his mind. If, if he didn't want to let me into Israel then why did he let me begin to conquer the area that became extended Israel? I think I shared with you before, my oldest daughter once gave me a beautiful pshat. She said, Reuben and God did Moshe a great favor. By asking for the land east of the Jordan, they essentially expanded the boundary east so that Moshe ultimately did get to go into Israel. At least a portion of it. At least a portion of it. So Moshe says, when you allowed me to conquer Eretz Sichon Va'og, it appeared to me, Demisi, I thought... Maybe God, you released yourself of your vow. Maybe you released yourself of your vow. So that's the uh, that's what motivated him. The uh, look at the Ramban. The Ramban quotes Rashi Vaeschanan Kasher Hiskir Kibosh Eretz Zichon Vaog Vaomar Ves Yoshua Tzivisi Beisahi Hiskir Kani Lo Evor Sham Kieschananti Al Hashem Anechbar Veloshema Elai Vitzivosi Lachazik Is Yoshua Kihi Avor. So Moshe Ramban says when Moshe recalled that he had commanded Yoshua to take the people into Israel, so that realization, that recognition, that awareness that it would be Yoshua and not him caused him to remember that he also appealed to God, he davened from the depth of his heart, to let him in. But Tam Ba'isahi, what do you mean at that time? What's Ba'isahi? So Rashi, so the Ramban says, Remez la'is ha'gzara shehizkir gam bi hisanaf Hashem. V'lonuzka rasham hatchina biyom ha'maisa. So Ba'isahi, what's Ba'isahi? Moshe says, in that time when that happened, I davened from the bottom of my heart, please give me one more chance, and God said no. What was the in that time? Again, you could read the Torah, you could read the Parsha, brain dead. Oh, Beisahi, okay, Beisahi, Moshe Davin, okay. What's Beisahi though? Whenever the Torah uses some ambiguous term, our job is to uncover, is to reveal what is it referring to. So Rashi said the Beisahi was, just now, after we conquered Eretz Sichon Va'og, I thought that you had reversed your decision, God. Look, after all, looks like I'm involved in the conquest. And when I realized that you hadn't reversed your decision, I appealed to you. <coughs> says the Ramban, no. The Eisahi is... Ki ba'isahi ba'isah nizker shekavash yisichon v'od v'yeschalti l'zilachim ba'amem mishinitin l'Yisrael v'chalakti arat ha'shnei ha'shvatim v'yazak ha'sher nemar lo ol al-har avarim hazeh ki az b'kesh rachim v'al-davar v'yeschanein hatchin ha'zos v'kasher lo shama ha'shem b'kolo chazer v'espal al-yifkar ha'shem l'kei ruchos l'chob asa yish al-aida k'mo shinizka sham v'zeo v'tzavas Yehoshua aval hizkir sham matfila ha'sher ne'ena'ala v'kan hizkir zeh lo'odiya ki arat yeah. Okay, so again, it's the, it's the history of this. It's that he conquered Og and Bash, uh, oh, uh, he conquered Og, Sichon and Og, thought he could get in. He davened. God said no. He davened again. Why does he mention it now, says the Ramban? 
He's trying to communicate to the people how fortunate and how lucky and how blessed they are. You're about to get to go in. I don't. And all I can tell you, he says, is I dive from the bottom of my heart. I appeal to God to let me in. And God said no. The reason was not to show off that he was a good davener. The reason was not to show off that he loved and valued Israel, the great pro-Israel advocate. The reason was because he wanted the people to cherish the opportunity that they would have. When we read Vayeschanan every year, it should be a reminder to us about the incredible blessing that we have. What Moshe couldn't do. I always remind my kids when we fly to Israel. Get off the plane. So you're about to do something that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get to do. You're about to walk in the land of Israel. Don't take it for granted. Don't dismiss it or minimize it. It's a big deal. And you feel Moshe's pain. You feel Moshe's pain. So how does get Moshe appeal to God? He says, Hashem Elohim. Those are his opening words. Hashem Elohim. You began to show me your power and strength. I know you can. So why Hashem Elohim? So Rashi says, this double formula, Hashem Elohim. Rachum Bedin. You're kind in judgment. Rachum Bedin. You're kind in judgment. What does that mean? Look at the... Sif Sechachamim, the super commentary on Rashi. Ritzon Latarich, the Hasham, Shem Shalarba Osios, Midas Rachamimhu. Right? Va Adonai, who Midas Adin. The name of four letters, Yudke Vavke, what we pronounce as Alf Dalad Nun Yud, Yudke Vavke, which is the, what do they call it? The Tetragrammaton. So, um, that is Midas Arachamim. That is. God has multiple names. <coughs> and again, God having multiple names is not that God had a lot of nicknames or synonyms to His names. There's, each name is symbolic of a different quality or attribute of God. So the name of God, that's Yudke Vavke, four letters, is Midas Rachman. And Alav Talad Nun Yud is Midas Adin. Umafarish Rachum Bedin, Kloma Rachum Bedino, Veloba Midas Adin HaKasha. Even in enacting judgment, one could enact judgment with compassion. One could enact judgment with, by being strict. Right? In other words, the parent's going to punish a child. So the parent could take it easy on the child. The parent could be strict with the child. So that's what rachum bedin is, compassion within the judgment. I guess a form of, of tough love. So that's Rashi's interpretation. The combination Hashem Elohim, Elohim is Midas Adin. Right? It's a, no, no, Elohim is Midas Adin. Right? Elo, we use the same term, Elohim is judge. You find times in the Chumash and Tanakh where Elohim means judge. It's not one of God's names. So the very word that we use to describe judge is the word that we use for one of God's names, because in that moment, God is acting as a judge. So when you see that name of God used, Elohim, we are connecting, we are relating to that aspect of God, that He's a judge. On the other hand, Yudke Vavke is, is, is Rachum, is kindness. So Rashi concludes that the reason Moshe appealed to this combination is he understood, hey God, you're a judge, I understand that, but I'm appealing to your compassion in judgment. That's Rashi. Look at the Ramban. The Ramban doesn't buy it. <laughs> Look at the Ramban. Rachum bedin lashon Rashi. V'lo hishkiach harav 
Ki Hashem Harishon who cause of Baal of Dalit, Bashani who cause of Biyod Hay. Rashi is saying Rachum Bedin as if it said, look at the heading of Rashi, Hashem Elokim. Does it say Hashem Elokim? It's punctuated as Hashem Elokim. But it says, Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, Yud Kei Vav Kei. But two names in a row that we pronounce the same way, that are different. But it doesn't say Elokim. When it says those two in a row, we punctuate the second Elokim. So the Ramban says to Rashi, it's a nice try. I know you want to explain as Rachel Bedin, kind within judgment, but that's not what it says. It says, Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, and then Yud Kei Vav Kei. Shabo Omru Kol Makam Shenem Hashem, Right, so he says very differently. Instead of Rashi's interpretation of this double name of God is, there's an aspect of Din, God sitting in judgment, but hey God, come up, come up with an easy verdict. The Ramban says that's not what it says. If you look at the actual words, Adonai comes from Adon. What's Adon? Master. Master. And what's Yud Vavke? That name of God is Midas Harachamim. So what Moshe was saying to God is, you are the master of compassion. You're the master of compassion. If anyone could have compassion, it's you. If anyone could take it easy, if anyone could change their mind, if anyone could show sympathy and empathy and kindness and sensitivity, you are the Adon Harachamim. You are the master of compassion. So you see how the Ramban disagrees with Rashi. Rashi is focusing on how we pronounce the words. The Ramban is focusing on how they're spelt. And because of the difference, they come to different conclusions as to how Moshe was appealing to God. Okay, and the Ramban goes on, but I don't want to take the time. You could read it on your own. You could read it on your own. Okay. Weiter. Okay, continuing. Look at the Orachai Makadosh. You have to understand, what was Moshe adding? Moshe could have just said to them, I davened from the bottom of my heart, and God said no. What did Moshe add when he threw in the words Ba'isahi at that time? In other words, go to the end of Parshas Dvarim. What was the very end of Parshas Dvarim? That they kill Sichon and Og. So that's why, by Isahi, most commentaries assume correlates with the end of Parshas Dvarim, killed Sichon and Og, and as the Orchaim just put it, Moshe says, by Isahi, I davened because I saw our conquest successful. I never would have thought to daven. I never would have entertained the possibility that God could change his mind had he not included me in the conquest. Venir Lomar Bihaira Od Omro Lemor. Achain, Orchaim gives a different interpretation. Perush. Omro Baisahi, whose man shenish Bashem al Dora Midbar, Shaloyu Esa Aretz. Shamar Beparsha Shalamala, Ukala Lamosha Bechlal, Shavuos Hagzera. Kamosha Amar Gambi his Sanaf Hashem Biglal Chem. Baisahi is Hanein Lashem, Levatel Gzera so, Latira Shua, Kiramos Bemaimer Ata Hilosa, Vedosh Rabbosen, Lashan Atar Shua, Kashir Evoer Besamuch. The Rachaim changes everything. Limban and Rashi say Baisahi means now after the conquest. Says the Rachaim, it's not what it means. You know what it means? 
Originally, when God said to this whole generation, you're not getting into Israel, and Moshe understood that he was included in that Zerah, he too was not getting in. He says, At that moment, at that time, I appealed to God, not only on my behalf, on behalf of all of us. Says Dorchaim, you have to remember who's Moshe talking to right now. Who's he talking to? Who is this generation? This generation are the ones who are meriting to go in. Their parents died in the desert. This is not the generation that, that left Egypt. This is the next generation. So they're all sitting thinking, you know what, Moshe, you're still here. Our parents are dead. You still are dominant. You're trying to make your way into Israel. Why'd you leave our parents? What happened to them? What happened to advocate? What kind of leader are you? Why didn't you come to the defense of our parents of the previous generation to allow God to reverse His judgment of them? Says the Orchaim. That's what Moshe says. Bo'isahi. Moshe says, I want you to know, I did appeal to God on behalf of your parents, when God first enacted that they would not be allowed in. So lest you think that as a leader, I have given up on your parents, I had given up on that generation, know that I fought for and advocated for them. Gemar Nadarim says that when a vow is taken, if you release part of the vow, then you can release, you can annul the entire vow. So Moshe's strategy says the Orchaim was, let me first get God to agree to let me in. That will be the easier part of the vow to release. After all, God has less against me than He does against this bunch of complaining, whining people. And once He will annul the vow to me, then I can appeal to Him to annul the broader vow against everyone else. So even though in the subsequent sukkim, the verses, you only see Moshe advocating for himself, not for the people. So you could say, where do you get off saying that Moshe was advocating for everybody? Says the Orachim, that was his strategy. First, God will let him in, and by once God releases part of the vow, He will annul the entire vow and allow everyone in. But the, the reason that Moses could not go to Israel is not the same reason why the people couldn't go. Well, that's debatable. Why Moshe couldn't go into Israel is a big subject of debate. That's what we talked about last Shabbos afternoon. And also, he didn't have the slave mentality. That's true. But if you remember, the Yorachayim said the reason Moshe couldn't go into Israel was because of the people. In other words, remember that if Moshe were the one to lead them into Israel, he would build a base on Mikdash that couldn't be destroyed. It would already be Messianic times. God ordained after the Meraglim came back, there's going to be a Tishabov. There's going to be a destruction of two temples. God ordained that. He said, in order to make that come true, I have to keep Moshe from going into Israel. So Moshe did see his destiny inextricably linked with that of the people. With that of the people. Okay, there's a long Arachayim, he goes on with the sentiment. But again, I just want to show you that this Be'isahi is very ambiguous. If you're sensitive to the text, Moshe says, you know, I davened at that time. What's the at that time? Rashi and Nirmban have their view. The Arachayim has his view. If you look at the Kliyakar, there's a long Kliyakar, he has his view. So what was Moshe's strategy? Moshe says, hey God, I know that you're the 
as the Ramban put it, Adon Arachamim, you're the master of compassion. You have begun to show me God Lachaves, Yarachazaka. You've shown me your greatness, and you've shown me your strong hand, that you stretch out to the world to do wonderful, kind things regularly. How about showing a little love my way? How about a little kindness my way? How about letting me in? How about letting me in? But it wouldn't be just about letting Moshe in, because if he did let him in, there would be a Bessamic Bash. Well, would right. why, why wouldn't Hashem want that? For the Orchaim's deputation. Um, why wouldn't Hashem want that? The answer is because sometimes you have to let your kids learn their own lessons the hard way because you know that they will be stronger and they'll grow greater if they go through the experience than if you bail them out. And God saw they're coming into Israel and realizing their messianic destiny now as being bailed out. And as a nation, we would be stronger um, if we would be forged through the exile. It doesn't make it pleasant, but it's tough love. Yes. Isn't it problematic to say that Hashem couldn't destroy the Hamidrash if Moshe built it? I mean, Hashem couldn't do anything. Why, why can't we? I mean, how can he possibly say that? I don't, I don't, I don't understand this. That the particular position. Say that again. Our Rambam says that, that Hashem couldn't let Moshe right. Israel because then he would end up building the Hamidrash and be destroyed. Right. Why couldn't it be destroyed? Right. So that that. There's a reason the Yorachayim is the only one who has this interpretation. It's, uh, the Yorachayim was a great Kabbalist. So he saw that Moshe's quality, in, when it, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Kabbalist, I remind you, and I will for the next few years, while I still can, that I'm not yet old enough. I'm, I'm not yet, I'm not, but I'm not yet old enough to be eligible to study Kabbalah. But um, in the spheros, Moshe corresponds with which sphero? Does anyone know? Netzach. So Moshe, at least the Archaim says, is Netzach, which is eternity. So what Moshe would impact would last eternally. There's, there's, there's a, a Kabbalistic notion to it, that if Moshe had built the temple, it would be eternal in its nature. Because what he contributed was something that was eternal. I don't, I don't claim to fully understand it. No, I mean, it still is, still is problematic to say that Hashem can't do anything. Right. Well, no, it doesn't mean Hashem can't. It would mean Hashem, Hashem would choose not to. Certainly he can, but he would be choosing not to. There's a beautiful Kliyakar here who says, we learn from here, if you look at the order of these psukim, you see a model for our structure of prayer. What do we do in the Amida? How do we organize our Amida? The first thing we do is praise. praise. And only then do we... Bakasha, do we petition, do we ask, do we have our requests? First three brachas are of praise. And then the middle blessings, 13 are requests. Not only are they arbitrary requests or they individual requests, but Anshe Knesset Sagadola, our great men of the, our men of the great assembly, were able to, with their, um, I don't want to say infinite wisdom, but with their endowed wisdom, were able to anticipate these are the 13 principles, these are the 13 most important values that everyone should ask for. In other words, we have an opportunity to subjectively within each of the 13 requests, the Bakasha section of Shemona Esrei, to add what we want. But if you ask what really the purpose of Bakasha is, not only to ask, but it's to calibrate. It's to calibrate our priority list. So three times a day when we daven, we say, you know, what's really important in life? If I had an opportunity to ask, what should I be asking? It's these 13 things. It's wisdom, it's forgiveness, it's good health, it's redemption, it's justice, it's Jerusalem, it's 
These are the 13 areas that should be priorities in our life that are the most important values. And the purpose of prayer is an exercise in recalibrating our priority list. In addition to, of course, wanting to be effective to get our supplications and petitions answered. But what do we do before we ask? First, we offer three brachas of shevach, three brachas of praise. Three brachas of praise, avos and gvuros. We talk about our avos, first brach of Magen Avraham, that God, you had... Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov who embraced your way. You are the Kel Agadol Hagibor Vahanora, and then we get into Gvuros. God, your might, Tagibor Liolam, that no one is like you. You are Mechaye Mesim. Nobody else can give life. Nobody else can restore life. Only you. Why do we organize? So where do we learn this from? Says the Kliyaka. We learn this from here. What does Moshe do before he issues his request? First, he offers Shevach. He says, God, you show me God Lacha Yarachazaka. Nobody like you. You are the one who can dictate heaven and earth. You are the mighty. You are the strong. You are the great. Moshe first organized his request, his, uh, his praise, Shevach, before Bakasha, says the Kliyakar. You can look at it on your own. It's based on a Gemara and Brachos. Moshe. You see that first you issue your praise and only then you ask for your request. Why? Why? Now the cynic will say, cynic will say, you're buttering him up? What do you do? I come on. I say, Yechavah, did I mention you look so beautiful today? Have I mentioned that? Have I mentioned that you look so pretty today? And what an incredible wife and what an amazing mother you are. What would be the first thing she would say to me? What do you want? What do you want? Now my wife wouldn't say that because I say that to her every day. She knows that I mean it. But in many cases, the first thing a wife will say, the first thing a wife will say is, what do you want? What do you want? So the cynic will say, why did Moshe organize his davening like this? And why do we organize our Shemona Esrei like that? The cynic will say, because we're buttering God up. We're, we're, we're laying it on thick before we go in for the kill. So look what the Kliyakar says. I'm in the second paragraph of the Kliyakar. Second paragraph. He says, A righteous person realizes that everything they have is really a gift from above. One of the biggest challenges our generation has is a sense of entitlement. We're entitled to everything. I got out of bed and woke up in the morning and let's say my foot hurt, so I'm walking with a limp. Oh, God, how do you do this to me? Why can't I walk? If one of my eyes is blurry, I can't see. Oh, woe is me. Who said you're entitled to see? Who said you're entitled to walk? Who said you're entitled to be? Who said you're entitled to be alive? We live with a sense of entitlement. Who says we're entitled to anything? We should be grateful for whatever it is that we have. So the righteous person begins life. I say to young married couples... Very often young married couples have conflict when it comes to parents or in-laws over issues of entitlement. Well, you gave my sibling this, you should give me this. How come you didn't fly me there? How come you didn't buy me that? How come you're not paying for this, that, or the other thing? 
the best attitude a young couple could ever have vis-a-vis parents or in-laws is we are entitled to nothing. I don't care what they've given siblings. I don't care what I think their portfolio is or was worth. What's the market doing today? I didn't even see. Up, up, up a little. Up. Change the subject. Wow, the futures were down. Well, the whole day's ahead of us. Wait. Okay. It was up. Who knows? So, so I think a young married couple says, I happen to know what the portfolio, their value, their net worth. I'm entitled. The best thing is, I'm entitled to nothing. And if your parents buy you a slice of pizza, psh, thank them. What a gift. And if your parents bought you a Slurpee, what a gift. Start with a sense of, I am entitled to nothing. Because then whatever you get, you'll be super grateful for. If you begin, I'm entitled to what my siblings have, and you're worth this, and your parents did that for you, and this one my friend's parents did for my in-laws, and blah, 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 then you're going to be in trouble. So the righteous begin with an assumption that God owes me nothing. God did me an incredible gift just by giving me, I already am in the red to God by being born. That's what the righteous. But Sadek assumes, I'm in the red, I'm in debt. I owe God just from the fact that I'm alive. Forget anything else. And then they live their entire life trying to pay off that debt. I've got to do good deeds. I've got to pay it forward, pay it back, because that's how I pay God back. Then what happens? When I pay God back, what's He willing to do? If someone lent you money and you paid them back, what will they be willing to do? They'll extend your line of credit. They'll either give you again, they'll give you more, they'll give you a bigger line of credit. If God sees us paying Him back and having an attitude that He owes us nothing and whatever He's given us, we owe Him back, then He'll extend our line of credit. He'll expand our line of credit. Beautiful Kliakar. He says, that's why davening is organized in this way. What if you started davening with your list of requests? You'd say, hey God, give me wisdom. My kid, my friend's kid got into Harvard. Why is my kid not so smart? You owe it to me. Hey God, give me health. Everyone I know has good health. How come I have a limp? How come I can't see so well? How come my stomach hurts? You owe it to me, God. I'm entitled to it. If we would begin with a list of our requests, it would foster a culture of entitlement. It would cultivate an attitude of entitlement. Therefore, we begin like Moshe. God... You're great. Whatever you've given me heretofore is an unbelievable gift. I am entitled to nothing. Now let me offer a list of things which I recognize would be pure matnaschinam, which I recognize that if you gave it to me, it would be a pure gift. I'm undeserving. I don't expect it. I'm not entitled. It would be a gift on your part. So says the Kliakar, Moshe did it and taught us that we're entitled to nothing. The righteous live their lives entitled to nothing. And the way to refine and cultivate within ourselves an attitude that I'm entitled to nothing is to begin by first praising God. And if I understand who God is and who I am in comparison to Him, now I'm in a position to ask because my asking will not be from a source of entitlement. My asking will be from a source of pleading. Says the Kliakar, this is a precious explanation. 
Zebiur Yakar. This is a precious explanation. Mm. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. I think that it's one of the biggest challenges we have in spirituality. A lot of people don't feel close to God because they live life with a sense of entitlement. And when the slightest, smallest thing goes wrong, they turn on God. And it's up to parents. Part of our responsibility and our job, if we are blessed to be parents, is to teach our children not to be entitled. To teach our children not to feel entitled. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of effort. It's exhausting. But to teach them not to feel entitled. Please, thank you. To earn their way. To work for some money. To earn allowance. And so on and so forth. But to... uh, to fight the natural inclination towards entitlement because if you feel entitled as a kid, then you'll feel entitled towards parents, you'll feel entitled towards uh, society, and you'll feel entitled towards Hashem. I was listening to a class by Rabbi Wallerstein who's become a popular speaker. So he talked about, uh, just off of this very quick tangent because it was powerful. He said, you know, parents bemoan the fact that their kids never say thank you to them for the things that they do for them. There's no lack of a sense of gratitude. So he said, where do kids learn that from? He says, because parents live with a sense of entitlement. You have your housekeeper. She just did the dishes. She just mopped the floor. She just vacuumed the carpet. Did you say thank you? So if you said turn to a parent and you say, did you say thank you? They'll say, what do you mean thank you? That's her job. That's what I pay her for. You go to a restaurant and the waitress took care of you. Do you leave a generous tip, which is what they depend on and rely upon? Now, of course, there's flexibility, more generous, less generous, depending on the service that you got. But did you leave a tip? My brother-in-law owns a restaurant in Israel. He told me this summer, the chil Hashem that he's always, constantly he sees, his waitresses and waiters, the people who don't tip at all, who under-tip, who just, it's kafwe tov, you know, who, who yelled and abused the waiter the whole meal, only to then not even leave a nice tip. So what do people say? Well, that's their job. Their job is to bring me the food. Why do I have to give them a tip? Why do I have to say thank you? So Rabbi Wallerstein says, so you know what happens to the kid? The kid grows up, and you say, you know, your mother did your laundry, made your dinner, took care of you, nurtured you. How can you not say thank you? Do you know what the kid says? That's her job. She gave birth to me. She, she chose to have me. That's her job. Why should I say thank you? That's her job. So if we want our kids to say thank you, despite it being her job, then we've got to be saying thank you and stop living with a sense of entitlement. So at the end of the day, you pay the housekeeper. At the end of the week, you say thank you. No, thank You walk by, the dishes, are, dishes look great. Thank you so much. Carpet looks, thank you so much. The house looks fantastic. Thank you so much. The sense of entitlement is a very, very dangerous one. So the Kliyakar... Thank you so much without even earning anything. Yeah. So indeed, the Kliyakar says, Zebir Yakar. This is a precious interpretation, and indeed it is. Part of davening is an exercise in refining our character. Part of davening is improving ourselves. So if I just stand before God and I offer Shevach praise, followed by my bakasha, but now my bakasha doesn't come from a sense of entitlement, but it says, God, I'm going to give you a long list. You owe me nothing. Nada. Gornished. I'm asking because I'm asking you're my father and I know you want to do make me happy, but I recognize you owe me nothing. And why do you owe me nothing? As God you are great and I'm nothing. That's how actually in Sha'aram Batvila, in the introduction to Sha'aram Batvila, he makes this point. He says the reason Shevach is before Bakasha is not because we're trying to butter up God. The reason Shevach is before Bakasha is because how can I even how can I even be be implying I'm talking to God without first understanding and positioning myself in that relationship. So when I'm going to stand before God giving a list of my demands as if we're equals, 
I'm going to stand before God, here's a list of my needs. As if we're equals, we're on par, we're colleagues, we're friends, we're peers. No. Before I can even ask God for anything, I need to understand who God is. You know who God is? He's Lokei Avram, Lokei Yitzchak, Lokei Yaakov. He's Kelagadol Hagibor Vahanora. He's Mechayei Mesim Barachamim Rabim. I have to know God is all-powerful. God is the source of all existence. God is the arbiter of my destiny. God controls my reality. Only when I understand God is omnipotent, infinite, perfect, I am nothing, now I'm ready to ask God for things. Now I can have a meaningful conversation. That's why it's organized. So all of that, our whole structure of Shemona Esri is learned from the beginning of this parsha. Moshe begins, the Tahachilosa. Moshe begins with Shevach, and only after the Shevach, Ebrana, then he turns to God and asks for that favor. But then he continues, All of a sudden he enters the, play, the blame game again. He says, God got angry at me. Look at Rashi. Vaisaber Hashem nismalei chema. God got angry. Lema'anchem, on your behalf. Rashi says, bishvilchem, meaning, because of you. Atem garamtem li. God got angry. You caused God's anger and wrath at me. At me. Velo shama elai. So he didn't hear me. Now by the way, what do you mean he didn't hear me? God's hearing, God needs a hearing aid. God's hearing is off. What does it mean he didn't hear? He didn't agree. Oh, he didn't accept. You see from here, by the way, that the term Shema does not mean to hear. It means, it means didn't listen. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. The obligation, the Shema Yisrael Hashem Lakeinu Hashem Echad, the mitzvah is not just to hear. It's to listen. It's to understand. I'll give you an example in halacha. We have a principle in halacha called shomea ka'one. If I hear you say a bracha, it's as if I've answered the blessing. And answering is as if I've recited the blessing myself. That's why I can make kiddush and you fulfill kiddush. I can make hamotzi and you can eat the bread. You didn't say hamotzi. But when you heard me, you as if said it yourself. You answer, you as if answered, you as if said it yourself. If I say it in a language you don't understand, can you fulfill the bracha, the blessing? No. The answer is no. If you don't understand what I'm saying, you can't fulfill. Shomea ka'ona only works if you are shomea means you understand. Shomea doesn't he- mean to hear. It means to listen, to accept, to understand, to comprehend. Lo shama elai, Moshe says. God didn't hear me. He didn't buy it. He, he, he heard what I said, but he didn't listen. He didn't accept it. And why is that? Because he got angry at me because of you. Look at the Orachayim. Says the Orachayim, why did Moshe have to say both? Why couldn't he say, God didn't hear me. What do you mean? God got angry at me because of you? And he didn't hear me. What's the connection between God got angry and didn't hear? And the Rechaim says, Moshe seemingly gratuitously throws in there, because of you. He should have said, God got angry with me, and He didn't hear me because of you. And lastly, the Archaim throws in the third or fourth question. He says, Moshe's already gone the whole guilt trip route. Moshe already told the people, I'm not allowed in, God's angry at me, big lalchem, because of you. So why lema'anchem here, big lalchem there? These are all the Orachayim's questions.
says the Archaim, Yizbor apim ha'she pirashnu b'ma'she amar ba'isahi, Adraba, ha'adam mevaksha b'loshon, I'm sorry, I skipped. She'amar ba'isahi le'mor, it connects with what the Orchayim said about Ba'isahi. Remember, this davening, according to the Orchayim at least, according to Rashi and the Ramban, Moshe did not have the people in mind at all. This was a personal plea. This was a personal prayer. God, let me in. According to the Orchayim, it wasn't a personal prayer for himself. It was a collective prayer. He was representing the people on behalf of everybody. Let me in. So he says... In regards to the prayer I had on behalf of you, God got angry at me. The reason you have two separate clauses here, says the Orchaim, is corresponding with the two prayers Moshe offered. In terms of the prayer that I offered on behalf of you, God got angry and rejected my prayer on your behalf. And furthermore, He also didn't hear me when I asked Him if I could come in. Beautiful, right? According to the Orchayim's understanding that there's two parallel prayers, then the Pasuk makes a whole lot more sense. And the Orchayim goes on in this manner. Want to stop here? I can't go. Alright, I think the hour is late. There's much more to talk about. But we're going to stop here. Although we'll take it up next, Mir uh, Tashem, next Thursday.